Hello and welcome to Meet My Potential podcast, where we talk to leaders from around the world to inspire and to ignite your potential. This is your host, Deepa Natarajan, that Indian girl from Toulouse in France. Before we get into the episode and talk about embracing ambiguity, I want to invite you to view my masterclass on why we need to rethink leadership. Like Dave Snowden mentions in his show today, the current state of the world is revealing the need for us to rethink leadership and how we can act as leaders. So I've created a 40-minute masterclass that dives deep into how we can rethink leadership and discusses the frameworks of how to make sustainable change so that you can be an effective leader. So head over to www.meetmypotential.com slash webinar to watch this free masterclass that's available just for you. So I'll repeat that again, meetmypotential.com slash webinar. All right. Today, we're speaking with Dave Snowden, the founder and the chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge. Dave created the Kniden Framework and works with companies using the wisdom from complex adaptive systems theory. So get ready to have some ideas uh, and inspire and be challenged by Dave. Very often, our brains try to make complex things simple. And in Dave's words, complexity is the new simple. So let's engage with complexity and not try to change or judge it. So let's embrace ambiguity and stay connected so that you can continue to engage with those around you. Dave, it's an honor to have you here, and I feel very grateful to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. So you created the Kinevin framework, and you talk about how systems can adopt in a complex environment. So how do you see what's happening today and the challenges that leaders are facing? I think some of them are the challenges that they've always faced. So the essence of the Kinevian framework is it defines five different domains or types of situation, or if you want to get fancy ontology, in which you need to adopt radically different leadership styles. Trouble with most leadership theory is it goes on a specific set of leadership concepts or competences, and it doesn't recognize the need for that shift. So for example, if you're in a highly ordered state where everything, the relationships between cause and effect is clear, your role is really to enforce doctrine, um, and you should be having people who do that for you. But equally, if you're in a major crisis, if everything is confused, everything is chaotic, then you have to get fairly draconian in your leadership style. You have to impose order or structure. Whereas in the complex domains, you've got high levels of ambiguity, you've got emerging patterns. Goals are actually a bad idea because they produce unintended consequences, and your job there is more to manage the ecosystem or manage the energy flows in the system so that the sort of behavior you want is more rather than less likely. And in the complicated domain, which is kind of like the fourth, it's all about respecting experts and respecting expertise, something that we haven't seen a lot of in COVID. The key thing that everybody forgets about Kinevin, and probably most critical one for leaders, is a central domain, which is known as confused. And if you're in there accidentally, it's a bad thing. But if you recognize confusion, uh, this is called the apparatic part of confused. Aporia are a, a classic tool of rhetoric in which you create irresolvable conflicts so that people think differently. 
And the essence of recognizing confusion is to realize you've got to decide you know, what aspects of the system are ordered, what aspects are complex, and you've got to be prepared to have that diversity of response. And the final point on this is I think there's a cult of the individual leader in Northern Europe and North America, which is deeply dangerous. The reality is good leaders actually take people with them who complement their weaknesses. And a lot of our work these days is on what are called leadership crews, where there's always a pilot, but who the pilot is can change. So I think we're starting to rethink leadership more collectively at the moment. What is the challenge in a complex, ambiguous time where we embrace uncertainty and it's hard to make decisions? We look at leaders as people who show us a direction. We set a path ahead. We say, okay, this is where we want to go. This, this is the plan. These are the goals. These are the next steps. And it's hard right now to have that sense of responsibility to give that sense of direction and at the same time take the responsibility for the decisions that people are making because we don't know how things are going to be the next month with the virus going, levels going up. So what can, what are some simple things? And I think you, and I'm again asking, like, what are some simple things? And maybe there's some complex things that people need to do. So what do you think people need to do there? Well, com complexity is sometimes called a new simplicity because it's also common sense. I think there's several things, all right? First of all, there's a very big difference between giving people a sense of direction and having goals. In a complex situation with many interacting parts, goals are actually generally dangerous. So there's a key phrase on complexity management is you start a journey with a sense of direction, but you stay open to change. Whereas most strategy and leadership theory is about clear goals, removing ambiguity. That's actually a bad thing to do in a complex world. I think you also have to manage the things that you can manage in a complex domain. So the critical thing to understand is that in a complex domain, there are things called modulators, not causes. So there are things which are having an influence on what happens, but there's not a straightforward cause and effect relationship. So mapping those and doing safe to fail experiments to see, well, if I modify this one a bit, what happens is kind of like the approach. Hmm. The other aspect of what we call constraints and constraints can contain or connect. So you can change containers, you can make something fixed permeable, you can change connections, you can link with people with different people. The only thing you can actually manage as a leader in a complex space are the modulators, the connections, and the containers. So that's what you do. And then you have feedback loops and things which are producing good results you do more of and bad results you do less of. It's a much more evolutionary approach. So it's basically take small steps, look at what you notice, and then adapt your way forward according to that. Yeah, but also realize that you won't notice what you need to notice. I mean, there's a famous set of experiments in which mm -hmm. radiologists are given a batch of x-rays and asked to look for anomalies. And on the final x-ray, there's a picture of a gorilla pasted on the x-ray, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. And on average, 83% of radiologists don't see it, even though their eyes scan it. So yeah, this is called inattentional blindness, all right? You do not see what you do not expect to see. So one of the key things any leader has to do is to build a sort of cognitively, culturally, experientially diverse network of sensors so that they can find the 17% who've seen something which is relevant before they talk to the 83% and believe they were mistaken. So again, I'm, I'm challenging this myth as the leader as the ultimate interpreter. It's, it's more the leader as the conductor of an orchestra, yeah, rather than the solo mm. violinist, if you want to take a metaphor. Right. And there's an 
need to know what is the right answer. And very often we think that the majority has the right answer. And like you rightly mentioned here, like before the 17% go and get convinced by the rest of the 83%, we need to be able to like listen to the 17%. Yeah, the other interesting thing about a complex adaptive system is that actually, in theory, there are no right answers. There are definitely wrong answers, but there are no right answers. It's only with the benefit of hindsight we'll see what worked. And that requires a very different type of management style. Yeah, and again, it's this collective leadership which you need rather than individual leadership. And the really interesting thing, if you look at the military, all of their leadership is collective. It's crews. It's not about individuals. It's a crew. Mm-hmm. And we just haven't taken that across into industry and the wider not-for-profit sectors. What's hard to rely on collective intelligence right now? Well, I think if you take connective intelligence as social media, you shouldn't rely on it. It's the tyranny of the herds rather than the wisdom of crowds. Mm-hmm. What we do, for example, is to use the whole of your workforce as a sensor network. But we don't ask them direct questions because that will result in political gaming. So, for example, we're present the current situation to, say, 5,000 people and ask them to interpret that situation into what are called high abstraction metadata or deliberately ambiguated index structures so they don't know what the right answer is. And then from DRUT, we draw contour maps, which show dominant views, outlier views, where there's agreement, where there's disagreement, and that's called a dispositional landscape. And that's what leaders need to make decisions. It's, it's not about just believing what people tell you. It's seeing the patterns in multiply different beliefs that you need to have. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And at the same time, it takes time to actually sit down and see the patterns that are, that are at play in the organization. Actually, it doesn't. Uh, we, we do it in real time. You, you present an idea. The pattern, the pattern is immediately visible to you. Mm-hmm. What are some small experiments that, organizations can put in place? Well, one is to actually switch from single point solutions to parallel safe to fail experiments. So if you're faced with um, a difficult problem and you've got several different people with perfectly feasible hypotheses about what you should do, don't decide on one, give a small amount of resource to all of them and see what happens as a result. I mean, that's the parallel safe to fail experimentation. Mm-hmm. So that's a simple thing to do. The other is use your workforce as a sensor network. That can be set up in 24 hours and give you instant feedback. But it's not done by walking the floor. That's one of the areas where technology does come into its own. And another simple thing is you need to build around you, particularly for a crisis, a core team of fewer than five people. And they need to be completely comfortable and non-vulnerable, and you need to trust them absolutely. Otherwise, it ain't going to work. And that's, that's a golden rule. Hmm. Do you think certain cultures have an advantage to do things parallelly than certain other cultures which like to do monotask and do one thing after another? I think it's more, there's a different focus. So what you see in Northern Europe and North America is what's called a socially atomistic culture. Mm-hmm. It sort of comes from the growth of Protestantism, to be honest, in that the whole focus is on the individual, not on the collective. That type of religion is eschatologically driven towards an idealized future state. And you can see that in most management theory. If I'm teaching in China or Africa or Latin America, they're more collectivist. Yeah? And Taoism, for example, has the whole concept of the present is what you have to deal with. The future is too uncertain. Mm-hmm. So I think there are cultural aspects which make it easier to understand complexity and more difficult. But the cult of the individual 
is really, really difficult. And it's really difficult for people to break away from that. Right. I remember when I was a child and my mom used to feed me, the way she got me to open my mouth so that I could actually eat because I wasn't a good eater was she'd ask me to look at the birds. And then she'd be like, what's that? And I'd say, it's a bird. And then she's like, where's the bird going? And like, it's going to the nest. And what's it doing? It's feeding the other bird. And then like, you know, the way I learned vocabulary was she'd be like, what's this? I say, it's a pen. Whose pen is it? My dad's pen. So everything is linked to everything else. Everything is connected and it's intertwined. Whereas when I came to Europe and I saw my daughter get into an, you know, primary school, she had a book uh, with pictures of each item. And then she learned in the French vocabulary, well, this is an umbrella or this is a book. But it wasn't like in the way I learned uh, when I was a child. Didn't used to be that like in Britain. I mean, I, we grew up on books like Wind in the Willows, all right? Um, yeah. And that's a fascinating book. I mean, the thing everybody always misses out is the key episode on the island with Pan. But the language in the book is way beyond the age group of the people who are reading it. So it talks about the sinuous river. But in the context of the story, you start to pick up the vocabulary. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And I think right. also this is the, the big problem in AI is the focus on nouns or verbs. Yeah? Which way do you go? Verbs are actually more important. Right, exactly. And so there is this part of education which builds a certain capacity to see complexity in certain cultures and in the way education plays a huge role in that. And so when we have like in certain cultures, like very individualistic, discrete um, set of data and planning and focus on the future. How can we introduce this notion of rewiring our brain to look at those interconnections? Okay, so the first thing you do is not to talk about rewiring the brain (laughs) because that's completely the wrong metaphor, yeah? So, you know, again, there's another, this sort of dichotomy between brain and body, which goes back to Descartes, is actually quite dangerous. So we know that consciousness is a distributed function of the brain, the body, its social interactions and its environment. It's not co-located with the brain. Yeah. So I think a key number one is abandon all computer metaphors for humans. It's kind of like lesson number one. Yeah. So it's less about concepts like rewiring it's it's questions about connecting in different ways right some of the great leaders i've known are actually interested in things like music and poetry and different disciplines they're not just focused on on management they've got a diversity mm-hmm. of patterns available to them right the answer lies in the music <laughs> well it's, it's also interesting it's it's abstraction comes before language in human evolution And we think the reason it then developed the way it did is abstraction disconnects you from the material. So you make novel connections. So it's key to human innovation. So the drive to STEM education is actually quite dangerous in the West because it will reduce the capability to invent novelty. And it's that ability to move into the abstract, which is a key feature for leaders to develop. Right. I remember, like in certain cultures, we read Aesop's fables, we read books like that, and we say, okay, they're moral of the story, do with what we have, or things like everything happens for the best, and otherwise, it's not yet the end. So we work, and these are abstract. How do we introduce these kind of notions without touching upon religion, but it's more spiritual? What's your take on that? I think there's several things. One is narrative is common, right? So we we always talk about, I always know more than I can say. I will say more than I can write down. 
So there's the stuff which you know instinctively, there's the stuff you can speak about, which is narrative, and there's the stuff which can be codified. So the use of narrative in organizations is one way you shift the abstract levels, right? There's then, I mean, you don't have to be religious per se, but there's a key phrase. In fact, we're running a major project on it internationally at the moment, which is called the numinous. And that comes from a book by a Lutheran theologian called, called Otto, called The Idea of the Holy. And what he argues is that a sense of something other than ourselves is a key part of humanity, and it manifests sometimes as religion, sometimes as something else. And that concept is called a numinous. Mm-hmm. And it's quite interesting. And a guy I used to know a lot in the 70s, Terry Eagleton, we were both on the editorial board of a Catholic Marxist journal, which tells you what the 70s was like. He's written two really important books. One is called Radical Sacrifice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other is called Hope Without Optimism. Now, those two books are actually really important for people to read because we're moving into an era where sacrifice is going to be necessary for survival and where hope is actually more important than optimism or pessimism. Yeah, You, you don't have to be optimistic to be hopeful. Now, all the major world religions had the concepts of hope and grace and sacrifice built into them in common language as well as theologian's language. Exactly. But we've lost those concepts in society and companies. So I think if we think about the numinous, not the religious, and we think about bringing those sort of ideas back in, we start to make progress. So what would be your simple approach to creating more consciousness in the way we operate? I think increase the interactions. I mean, increasing and decreasing interactions. And the other big problem for leaders is they tend to get surrounded by people who reinforce their beliefs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost inevitable because, you know, I remember I've, I've validated this with three national security advisors in the States, is people compete not to tell them what they need to hear, but they actually compete to have their advice accepted. And you see that with leaders. So the natural dispositional state is that you will end up with surrounded by yes people. Right. And this goes back again to that um, experiment where you found that we listen more to the 83% than the 17%. We go with standard patterns. Yeah. Right. If I was a leader, what's one simple thing? And again, I'm going back to something simple. Like what's one simple thing that allows me to actually look at what I disagree with? Diversity. Mm. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, it used to be the case in IBM, but they don't do it anymore is there was almost like a status symbol for very senior people about having a few mavericks around them, people who actually really upset people. <laughs> so if you want a key phrase on this, just remember the cynics are the ones who care. You should listen to the cynics. Fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Before we come to an end of the episode, like, what's your advice for people who are very future-focused, who want to actually create the future based on dreams and say, okay, this is the future, this is the state I want to go, and these are the plans and these are the steps? Because you know, there's an inherent assumption that the future cannot be built from the past, and therefore it's like looking at the future state. And that's how, where technology is also going today, is technology is bringing to us things that users don't even ask for. Well, that's what we call unarticulated needs. And by definition, therefore, you shouldn't be defining the future state because you can't yet articulate it. Yeah, there's a huge contradiction in that. People who try and have goals with with multiple steps are actually eliminating weak signals, um, which means they may be lucky or they may be unlucky, but they won't survive in a truly complex world. Fantastic. So that brings us to being more present and 
Yeah. Um, you need to be more connected, not more present. Can you say more more connected too? Yeah, in a highly dynamic situation, the ability to listen to people from different backgrounds and the ability to filter a key, right? So the whole concept of presence has grown. I mean, this is the Sharmiga nonsense as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's based around, I mean, I argue that's actually about withdrawing from the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you end up in this bubble of people who use the same platitudes and, you know, the world would be a better place if only everybody thought by us and everybody was present and they'd gone through the you and they were at this heightened state of enlightenment and... That's a terribly comfortable place to be, all right? But it's not going to make a blind bit of difference to the world as a whole, and it never has. So engagement is is more important than presence. You need to engage. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That is uh, so important today. We need to engage with everything that is happening around us. And there's a famous saying, like, be aware of what is happening around you and, and engage with it. And there's a sense of also, again, in Buddhism that comes, which is like, accept things as they are, rather than fight against it. Yeah, and I think it was interesting. I was on a big call this morning. We were talking about the differences between American and Chinese imperialism, right? Mm-hmm. And what's actually different is if you're negotiating, the Chinese aren't interested in your ideology. They're interested in your natural resources. And the way they've actually managed is they just you know, let the barbarians conquer them, then make them Chinese. So you you need to think more about that sort of framework. It's the ability not to do anything. Engagement is not always doing things. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's waiting for things to develop and choosing the right point in time. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. And before we end this episode, what's one message that you'd like to share with the audience who feel threatened by the authority that they have and also by the pressure of responsibility that comes along with that authority to take their people along with them? Uh, Resign or live with it. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Dave, for being here with us. Pleasure. If you liked the episode, I'd appreciate if you could give us some feedback on whatever podcast medium application you are using. I'd love to hear from you. And... I'm going to talk to you again in one week's time. And until then, stay cool.